From the Center for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, this is The Steady Stater, a podcast dedicated to discussing limits to growth and the steady state economy. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Brian Check, and our guest today is Ray Suarez. Some of our listeners might be wondering right now, you mean the Ray Suarez from the PBS NewsHour? And I say, exactly. Ray was a senior correspondent at the NewsHour from 1999 to 2013. Before and after, he's been affiliated with numerous networks including CNN, NBC, Al Jazeera, and Euronews. Actually, Ray's been involved in radio and television broadcasting ever since his freshman year in college at New York University in 1974. Today we'll be talking with Ray about one of his specialties, the future of American cities. Ray Suarez, welcome to the Steady Stater. Great to be with you, Brian. Ray, I must say we have quite a contrast here. My success in advancing the steady state economy has been pretty limited, so I decided to start interviewing other folks who fared a lot better. Meanwhile, you've been so successful in your reporting and interviewing, now you're the one being interviewed. Tell us about the most memorable interview you ever had on either side of the mic. Uh, Gosh, you know, there have been so many. I've been interviewing people as part of my work for 40 years now. I've interviewed everybody from uh, gangbangers on an urban street all the way up to uh, tribal chiefs in Africa, uh, princes (laughs) in Europe, prime ministers. Uh, it's, It's been quite a varied career. So... I guess some of the most uh, memorable interviews uh, had to do with two trouble spots in the world. In South Africa, which was trying to put itself on a different path after more than 40 years of apartheid, and Northern Ireland, which had had centuries of um, communal strife between the British and Irish people and now was trying to find a way to put itself on a new path. And uh, I had done extensive interviews in both places uh, and covered both conflicts closely. And both those places have have changed a great deal. Hmm. Okay, well, yes, and that's been quite a career, so we're really uh, lucky to have you on the Steady Stater today. And I want to focus on the future of cities in just a moment, but just so our guests can get to know you a little better yet, what would you say are a few of your other top investigative interests today? Well, I've been interested in um, global climate change, in um, inefficiency, in development, in uh, making a world that's a livable place for my children, who are young adults, uh, to be parents and grandparents in at the end of the 21st century. The things we're doing now and the things we've done over the last 50 years have really pushed back against that goal. So I remain, as I've been throughout my career, really concerned about questions of sustainability, about efficient growth and development, about um, having a place to live in that's decent, not only for the richest people in the world, including Americans, but also some of the poorest who live in the more fragile 
more vulnerable environments on the planet. All right. So now uh, on to American cities. What has happened to our American cities that causes you such concern for their future? And uh, why don't we start with what you've called the great suburban migration? Suburbs existed before the Second World War, but they were small. They weren't the extensive oceans of single-family homes that we see outside places like Houston or Dallas or Phoenix today. And after the Second World War, we embarked on a development model that has not served America or Americans well. Uh, With a hidden raft of subsidies, we've created enormous sprawled conurbations that are inefficient, expensive, and have to be heavily subsidized by the rest of society. It drives me crazy in part because the people doing it said that they were capitalists. What they were doing was anti-capital, destructive to capital, and also at the same time, pioneering a new way of life that has been terrible for Americans. Right, and uh, you know, I know you've referred in the past to the myth of capitalist efficiency. I guess that great suburban migration is a great example, but what's the broader thesis in a nutshell? banks partnered with developers who partnered with politicians to create a largely regulation-free development perimeter around established metropolitan areas. And at breakneck speed, we built new residential areas that were inefficient, that demanded the use of the car. And the car wasn't an option. You had to do all the tasks that you had to accomplish in life by car, whether it's get to work, buy your food, uh, go to recreation, because we built single-use residential areas that didn't allow any commercial space, in many cases also excluded public parks or pushed them to the perimeter of newly developed communities. Um, Highways were heavily subsidized, the hookups to existing infrastructure for water and sewage, for garbage, for uh, energy and for uh, cable television and, and telecommunications, all heavily subsidized. So none of these things had to pay their own way or reflect the wider cost to both the companies that were providing these services and to the society as a whole. Wow. Well, you know, we. I guess we can't pack everyone into cities either. We need farmers and ranchers and loggers and miners and even foresters and park rangers and such. Yet we destroy our natural and agricultural ecosystems if we scattered everyone uniformly across the countryside. So clearly there's a balance to be struck here between city and country population. But my question is this. Is there a a valuable role for suburbs as a sort of economic or even a cultural interregnum between city and countryside? Of course, when the population of the United States doubled, the inhabited land area of the United States was going to have to get bigger. And of course, uh, we were going to have to build new places to live. At the end of the Second World War, the vacancy rate in New York City was 1%. We hadn't built any new housing, 
in many years because of the Great Depression and then World War II. So yes, we were going to have to build new places. But the places we built didn't have to be as inefficient, as anti-environment, and as anti-capital as they were. They required the destruction of existing capital to make their business model relevant. I'll give you an example. I was reporting in Cleveland, and I walked into the driveway of a man who was selling his house. I saw him working in his garage, and there was a for sale sign out front. So I walked down the driveway, asked him if I could talk to him. He was selling a three-bedroom, two-bath house with a two-car garage in a Cleveland neighborhood for $95,000. And he had put a significant amount of money into that house. But right at that moment, in a metropolitan area that was not growing in population, lots and lots of new housing was being built on the development perimeter that was heavily competitive in price so that he had no pricing power over an asset he had held for decades and had made significant investment in over the decades. He had improved the bathrooms and put in a new kitchen and all of that stuff. He couldn't get his money out because so-called capitalists were building more new units of housing than there were new families in the Cleveland metropolitan area, thus bidding down the price of every existing house. That mm. kind of thing has gone on for decades. Oh boy, tough luck case in Cleveland. But yes, that, that seems to be a common trend, especially as you've written about in these cities in the Northeast. But I guess I, I should ask you now, uh, what do you see as the future of American cities? American cities had a great set of comeback years. As a new generation, many of them, the children of people who told themselves that they had to leave the city in order to raise their children, decided no, uh, whether it's proximity to work, proximity to amenities, whether it's being able to live without a car, actually being in the city is okay. So whether you're on the north side of Chicago or in Brooklyn, New York, or in certain center city neighborhoods in Washington, where I've been living for more than 20 years now and has grown in population from 540,000 to 720,000, people have decided, no, the city is where it's at. And there's been at least a swing to create more of a choice. So new housing is being built in the center city. Each one of those units has smaller carbon because it involves more public transportation, less single passenger car trips, more walking, more use of the subway, more walking to uh, acquire the necessities of life like groceries, um, easier hookup to water, to cable television, to electricity, to gas. And at least it brings the pendulum back to a, a center dwell point where we can make choices as individuals and as families that res respect real need, real convenience, real amenities, and aren't the result of this wave of subsidies. The, the federal government is not as heavily in the business of subsidizing suburban development as it was in the 50s and 60s. 
All right, Ray. Well, I'd like us to chat a bit more about economic geography in a moment. But first, we need to take a short non-commercial break with Rick Tibbetts. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying the show. Want to stay up to date on what's happening in the Steady State community? Our blog, The Steady State Herald, is the premier outlet for relevant, timely, and fully informed discussion on steady state economics. We publish new articles every week, featuring analysis of topics ranging from economic theory to politics and governance. You can find this and a variety of other informational resources on our website, steadystate.org. Simply pan over to the track tab and click Steady State Herald in the drop-down menu. Now, back to the show. You know, Ray, in ecology, we study about the flows of energy and biomass in what we call trophic levels. So the economy of nature has three basic trophic levels, the producers or plants, primary consumers that eat the plants, and secondary consumers that eat the primary consumers. Now, it gets a lot more complicated, of course, yet the basic trophic levels are always and everywhere relevant in ecosystems, Doesn't that kind of mirror our economic geography where we have the producers out in the rural areas and then uh, wouldn't the natural progression be toward uh, heavy manufacturing in suburban or exurban areas and then the great variety of service providers and light manufacturing in the cities? Sure. And one thing that happened after the Second World War is you saw heavy industry migrate away from historic urban centers. The modern methods of manufacturing required large single level spaces that were harder to acquire in the more vertical urban environment. A lot of factories in places like Brooklyn, in places like Cleveland, in places like Boston, Um, grew out of 19th century industries and used belts and material transfer uh, in multi-level manufacturing. So there were actually factories that had three and four floors. Uh, What you wanted in the 1950s was um, 25, 50,000 square feet on a single level. And where could you find that? Out on the development perimeter. But unfortunately, we never did true cost pricing in a way that reflected the environmental impact of those decisions. So when you put services out on the development perimeter as well, because that's where the people are increasingly, um, if you build a, um, a strip mall and include acres of parking, because there's absolutely no other way to get to that place, that, those acres of parking have an environmental cost, loss of drainage, increase of polluted runoff into uh, subsoils and nearby streams. Uh, that loss of drainage makes areas more vulnerable to flooding. We never priced in any of those externalities, so it became easy, easy, easy to make development decisions that acted as if none of those externalities existed. We have become so addicted to shifting costs that decisions around development that could be made in a more responsible, lower impact manner don't get made 
because there's no cost involved. There's no price signal that's sent back to the developer because we wanted to privatize profits and socialize costs. And that's what American industry and American development has done over the past seven decades. Mm -hmm. You think we would have been better off if uh, if we were instead of a uh, a country of capitalism, a country of uh, Georgist public financing with a single so, tax on land instead of uh, income taxes? And Henry George uh, is underread, underappreciated, underrecognized, and should have at least informed the kind of decisions we were going to make in the post-war decades. That it was not a cost-free matter. What we did was not think about land as a finite resource and the interplay of various natural forces like rain and drainage and uh, the movement of water in natural water courses in, in places like suburban Chicago. So the Des Plaines River and the Fox River repeatedly flood and destroy um, millions of dollars worth of real estate, millions of dollars worth of commercial property. Why does it flood all the time? Well, because we built on a floodplain and we didn't ask ourselves hard questions and we didn't use Henry George at least to inform the conversations we were having around taxation, around land value, around the understanding that um, we, there is no Earth 2 and there's no US 2 uh, mm. to do this all over again with a do-over. Yeah. Well, well, let's shift gears just a little, but not a lot really. Ray, uh, are Americans lacking sense of place? Huh. Well, I've mourned the loss of a sense of place. I, um, I think a lot of the places we built after the Second World War were anti-place. They were unplace. Uh, you know, place is something that evolves and develops through an interplay of social and economic and cultural forces, and you abandon it uh, at your peril. When we moved en masse to um, thousands of new communities that were not based on some of the old ideas about what made the community. We built new churches out on the development perimeter. We didn't build much social space. We didn't build space with an eye toward creating community. As a matter of fact, places would fight against having commercial space in their midst because they didn't want strangers hanging around. Who are these people who are coming into our community to shop? So we made a lot of decisions uh, in building places like Levittown that didn't count on what human beings wanted out of a place. And we underestimated that part of the human experience, I'm convinced. Hmm. Yeah, well, James Howard Kunstler and Jane Jacobs, I think, would agree. They've written quite a bit on that, too. And uh, But I want to, I guess I'm going to open a can of worms here. And, you know, the bulk of the American landscape pretty much everything except subtropical Florida and Arctic Alaska is analogous to European ecosystems. I'm talking especially about deciduous forests and temperate grasslands with many of the exact same species or highly analogous ones. 
So when those waves of European immigrants came to the USA in the 1800s and early 1900s, they often settled in similar ecosystems. It seems to me that their sense of place was hardly rattled, and in fact, the familiar ecosystem in the USA probably welcomed them as powerfully as a family member might have. But of course, a high percentage of those immigrants, especially Eastern Europeans, I suppose, were peasant farmers where the ecosystem was everything. Today, though, I think only about 3% of Americans are farmers, and not many immigrants are either. So is it just a much tougher challenge for today's immigrant to find, develop, and maintain a sense of place in the USA? Well, uh, that's a great question. When you look at a map of the United States and look at communities in the Great Plains, they're often named for the places uh, in the old world that the people who built them came from. It's a tighter country. And so today's immigrants, even those who work in the agricultural sector, you know, a lot of the work is being done by immigrants. They are uh, people who came from farms in Mexico and Central America who end up living on or near farms in California, but control the social environment. They don't name the places. They don't create the social institutions. They don't create the web of associations. They move uh, almost like a hermit crab into somebody else's shell and try to make it their own. So we're seeing in the 21st century something very different from what we saw in the 19th century when we had run indigenous people off the land and looked at it as a tabula rasa and created community, we thought, from scratch with no reference to what there was there before. What today's immigrants are doing, whether they're South Asians moving into uh, communities in New Jersey uh, or Vietnamese uh, moving into communities in and around Houston, um, Mexicans in uh, Iowa or um, east of the Cascade Mountains in uh, the Yakima Valley in, in Washington State, they are moving into an already created social economic environment and trying to harvest a little piece of their own. It's a different challenge, and a very um, there. You know, there's no unowned, uninhabited land that the government's giving away. Uh, the way it gave land to sodbusters, the way it said to people from uh, Scandinavia in the second half of the 19th century, if you promise us you'll develop this farm, we'll give it to you. There's nothing like that for a Guatemalan today. Mm-hmm. And I think you led us directly into that sort of that mother of issues that we deal with primarily here at the Steady State or limits to growth. And uh, what we'd like to do is get you back on the show, maybe down the road a, a few months or later this year, and, uh, and talk more specifically about that. Like, how many more people can we have? Uh, what kind of a sense of place can we maintain? Uh, with, you know, different levels of population and different uh, stresses on the environment caused by GDP growth and all that subsidization that you talked about as well. I like that. I don't get a chance to talk about these subjects very often because they don't come up in the news very often. So (laughs) thanks a lot for having me on.
Well, folks, that about wraps her up. We've been talking with Ray Suarez, the broadcast journalist best known for his penetrating reporting at the PBS NewsHour. Ray told us about the great suburban migration, wrenching decades that upended a way of life, so many ways of life, really, in the great cities of the Northeast. As Ray helped us understand, the suburban migration was certainly linked to the American obsession with GDP growth. I'm Brian Check, and you've been listening to the Steady Stater Podcast. See you next time.